It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon. It's Tuesday. It's one o'clock live here, and that means it is time for Talent Talk. And I'm very excited to have two wonderful guests on the show and for us to be able to talk about talent and culture and all of the things that go into, uh, I guess, being an exceptional person and being an exceptional manager or an exceptional leader. Uh, and hopefully we can dive into all of those topics. You know, and this show is really meant to be this place where, you know, I used to back when, you know, before we had COVID, but even before that, I would go to shows, I would go and, and learn from people and hear what they had to say. And then hopefully, you know, pull them off to the side in the corner and ask them a few more questions, right? And get that, get a little bit of that time to kind of pick their brain and to maybe push, push some buttons and see if I might discover a truth, discover something really important about how we need to work and how we need to lead. And it was the, that sort of interaction that inspired me to come and start this show so that we could have these conversations publicly. We could, you know, kind of go back and forth and allow everyone to listen in and hopefully, you know, gain some insights so that I'm not the only one hearing this sort of amazing bits of advice and wisdom from these leaders. Um, so many of their stories were so valuable to the audience that we put them into my first book, The Power of Company Culture. And it is a great set of, of all kinds of stories and lessons and what you have to do if you want to have an exceptional culture. You can buy, find that on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. And don't forget, we will be announcing a, really a huge promotion for my next book, Remote Work, where you'll be able to participate uh, and be able to buy the book in advance uh, and have a lot of really cool prizes and giveaways that are going to go along with that. And more about that soon. So now uh, Talent Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But most of you get us in the podcast after the fact. That's that's cool. We'd love to have you. But make sure you subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. It's really important that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And we'll sort of let the let the technology do its work, right? Remind you whenever there's something new there to learn and to listen to so you don't have to go look yourself. Now, the last piece is don't forget we love to have questions and comments and maybe even an argument on Twitter. So go to at people G2, follow the hashtag uh, talent talk. If, if you don't want to follow people G2, uh, but either way, if you're following along, you can uh, really see, we have live tweets going out. Angela uh, who helps me with the show puts in all the best comments, links to books, links to profiles, everything that you might need. If you were maybe driving while you were listening and didn't weren't able to write something down, we've, we've done it for the work for you on Twitter. So Feel free to reach out there. And like I said, ask a question or make a comment. If you have something you want to say, you can do it there as well. Okay, my guests today on the show are Dr. Michelle Weiss, uh, an education and workforce strategist, senior advisor at Imaginable Futures, uh, and a Thinkers 50 named Top 30 Management and Leadership Thinkers to Watch in 2021, and the author of Longtime Learning, Preparing for Jobs, that don't even exist yet. Well, that seems like something we got to know about. And then um, after the uh, commercial break, we'll bring in uh, Chuck Cooper, managing member of Whitewater Consulting, who's passionate about helping business owners navigate the world of HR through consulting, education, analysis, and solutions uh, that work to eliminate fear, uncertainty, and doubt uh, that business owners have when it comes to solving and creating uh, people problems. So let's go ahead and get uh, started with today's first guest, Dr. Michelle Weiss. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Chris. 
So I know you're in Massachusetts, uh, which, you know, on any given day, you might say, well, geez, it's very cold today. At this time of year, it's either very cold or suddenly gone up by 40 or 50 degrees. But uh, how are things in your part of the world? They just went back to cold. They were beautiful <laughs> for a moment. And then now we're we're freezing again, but it's going to warm up soon. So there's hope. Good. That's good. And I won't tell you how the weather is here. So it's just Please not don't. fair. Yeah. <laughs> I already know. <laughs> I was on a call earlier with someone today who uh, is in California as well. And they go, oh, it's just so cold here. And I'm like, shh, don't say anything. You know, they're like, yeah, it got down to 40 last night. And I'm like, we're talking to people who are, it's not even 40 during the day right now. Like, don't just, you know, don't, don't mention it. Uh, anyways, well, maybe you can tell everyone a little bit about you, you know, your work, what you're doing, and what's important for us to sort of, you know, really, really understand about you and your work so that we can have a great conversation today. Sure. So I, I kind of hover in this space between education and the workforce, especially post-secondary education and training in the workforce. And have ha- I kind of come from a background of working in higher education, but then also worked really closely with Clayton Christensen on the theories of disruptive innovation and built out his higher ed practice for his think tank there. And over the course of my career, I've just built different kinds of research and development labs and innovation labs for different kinds of organizations. And So as you mentioned, I I just came out with this book called Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. And it's very much about how all of these conversations about the future of work are really about the future of workers and how that connects to continuous returns to learning. Because in order for us to thrive in the future, we have to think about how we are going to continuously reskill and retool ourselves to, to remain competitive in that very uncertain world of work ahead. So there's certainly like very easy, I think, uh, changes that people understand, right? We went from being on a farm to industrial revolution. We went, you know, maybe in, in our current uh, lifetime, we re- might remember a time when you would go to a job and they would teach you how to use like mm-hmm. the suite of Microsoft. And now you're just expected to show up and know how to use Word and Excel and PowerPoint or, or Google, all the different Google apps and things like that. Right. So there's seems like there's these little progressions where we train people, but then suddenly we just expect them to know how to do these things. Um, I think we spend a lot of time being a remote first organization, spend a lot of time teaching people how to be remote and how to do that well. And now, of course, with COVID, we're just going to think that most people are going to have to know what that's like. They would have gone through that and they can understand that. Uh, and we may not have to train them quite as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there maybe are there other uh, sort of examples or places where maybe uh, things are a little bit different or maybe they've changed quite, you know, maybe even quite a bit than in years past that you're starting to see? Yeah. So it's interesting, right, that you're pointing to that slow disinvestment from training. And it's been a real massive uh, retreat from it over Basically, since the 1970s, we've seen this this happen over time. At the same time that that's been happening, you also have higher education or post-secondary institutions also kind of saying, well, workforce training is really the province of employers. We're about lifelong learning. And so what happens in this kind of void of uh, working adults, working age adults who are in the workforce who kind of don't know which way to turn, um, we saw what happened when the systems aren't working, which is what we have today. When when the pandemic hit, you saw how incredibly stuck people were. There was just no way to kind of port over skills from one, you know, broken industry to jobs in demand. And that's what we, um, that's what we currently just sort of fail at doing. We cannot figure out how to transition large numbers of people to better economic opportunities. So as we think about doing this better in the future, there's a lot of knitting together that needs to happen of existing and new resources and solutions and organizations um, kind of really focused around career navigation, better wraparound support services, more precise targeted educational opportunities, ways to you know reskill on the job and then also fairer and more transparent skills-based hiring practices. So there's a lot of things that need to come together. And we saw what happens when we continually sort of retreat from the problem. What happens is that millions of people get stuck. Right. Right. And and I can kind of understand, you know, why employers maybe have backed up a little bit. I mean, 
things have suddenly moved so much quicker, right? Technology has happened so in such a rate that we've never seen before that it'd be hard to keep up, even if you wanted mm-hmm. to. Um, and then we've seen a real shift in, more, I think, more of the user experience and the user sort of taking control of this. And so it's not really the employer. It's not really the school. It's not really some mm-hmm. other organization telling them, well, you should be good at this thing. It's just, well, mm-hmm. I now have this incredibly powerful new tool. I better be good at it if I want to be able to do cool things on it or be able to use it to my advantage. So mm-hmm. it has been kind of a maybe a democratization, right, of that, of, of maybe in the last 20 or 30 years about what we focus on as as employer as employees. Yeah, but unfortunately, all the risk is then laid on us as individuals to bear the burden of reskilling on our own. And not only do we have to kind of figure out when in the world we're going to do this reskilling, but we also have to figure out how to finance it. And so I think that is, I think you're right. It's kind of been this mentality of, well, maybe the markets will just kind of figure this out. It's just, you know, people will kind of, will be self-disciplined enough to figure out how we fill our skills gaps. It's just not sustainable given that rapid kind of technological advancement. Employers can't just sort of look at that uncertain future and say, well, I just, I'll just keep hiring the people who have precisely the talent that we're looking for and buy that talent, it's really going to now involve a pretty, um, pretty concerted, uh, you know, building up of the incumbent workforce. We can't just always be buying talent on the outside. Yeah. And, and I've seen some, you know, things out there where obviously there are lots of places online where someone can go to go learn something for free mm-hmm. or very inexpensively, which is great. And I've seen Google sort of saying that they're going to really go after this model and they're going to shift in there. And I think, you know, on a very tactical standpoint, this makes a lot of sense. It's great that people can go and get access to the things that they want. But on the flip side, the more strategic view is that whether you're getting this from your employer or you're getting this from your university, the ability to be able to be exposed to new ideas and a new uh, maybe sort of train of thoughts or, or disciplines or whatever it may be, right? you're just not going to get that by saying, well, I want to go into programming or I see programmers are being paid a lot, teach me programming, mm-hmm. when maybe you would have loved to have been a sociologist or you'd be better off being an artist or you'd be better, you know, like how do we overcome that gap, right? If you're not ever being exposed to new things, how do you know what new thing you might, right, or better thing you might be able to do for yourself? Yeah, I think what you're pointing to, right, is like uh, we tend to think um, only within the silos that we are aware of, right? Like where we kind of know the jobs that we know, we don't know what else uh, is out there. If one of the one of the things that kind of helps us move out of that sort of um, more narrow view is if we think about the skills that are needed for the future, we really do need to be cultivating the best problem solvers in the world, right? Because all of those technological advancements are bringing with them really problematic first, second, and third order effects that are affecting our social lives. They're affecting our political lives, right? We've seen this happen in real life. Um, and so as we think about building and building the talent and building, you know, capable thinkers for the future, the problems that we need to put in front of our working learners, um, you know, all the way from K, K through 12 on up to more mature adult learners are these skills that are, are these are these problems that don't have very specific boundaries, right? Because as we think about the problems of the future, they're hairy they're wicked, they're, they don't come in these kind of perfect academic departments where we know we're sol- solving this kind of problem. And it, and it involves our deploying a sense of range where we can bring in different disciplinary concepts to solve problems. So I think that's a real critical thing to think about for the future, both on the you know training side, but also within uh, the workforce as we think about you know integrating more work-based learning opportunities. How do we give learners the opportunity to practice practice these skills where they're where they're really working on real world problems to to solve and i and i think we talk about that a lot in theory you know in k12 and you know traditional higher ed institutions we don't actually do truly you know unsiloed interdisciplinary learning well and at scale 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I can think back in my my schooling and my children's schooling. My wife's a teacher. I see what she does all the time, right? And so even till today, education is not really rewarding people for being problem solvers or rewarding mm-hmm. people or, or children, uh, you know, whoever's in for that collaborating. Right. Yeah. But they're rewarding them for memorizing. They reward them for regurgitation, right? Just sort of like being able to show that you, un- I guess they reward them for understanding, uh, which in some level is good, right? But there isn't anything built into there for risk-taking and problem-solving. Um, and so I know me, like I struggled in school, but I got to work Got to work, and in work, I flourished because I was mm. a problem-solver. I could easily, you know, figure that stuff out and be able to do that. But in school, it was like, you know, B student is being complimentary, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was, but it wasn't a place where I excelled. Whereas my wife was like straight A student, right? And it, it was easy for her. So I, there has to be, I mean, maybe education has to think a, a, about this. Maybe there has to be some giant revolution, much like COVID has revolutionized work, right? In a very short period of time, maybe something else will revolutionize it. But this is something that you think education really has to be paying attention to for, in order for it to stay relevant, you know, in the yes. coming decade? Yeah, I think, you know, we really do have to figure out whether what we're measuring actually matters. I think what you're pointing to are the ways in which our assessments prioritize a different kind of set of achievements uh, versus the kind of deep learning and far transfer that we actually prize in the workforce, which is the ability to kind of apply that knowledge in new ways when we are solving a problem. And that's not an opportunity we are given uh, frequently and with pra- you know with ability to practice in a traditional higher education course. It's just it's just not the way our departments are set up. Um, but I think you're right. I think, uh, I th- and I think it, it it's it's become very clear. You know, I think you have kids. I have kids. Um, I've just seen it with the with the pandemic and the way in which online learning has been presented in this mode. And you see what is being upheld as the most important piece of kind of interaction and and being on the on the computer or on video is like the most important thing versus really thinking about what are we measuring when we're doing this face-to-face interaction over Zoom or Google Hangouts. Where is the transfer of learning happening? Are they learning kind of deep structures and how they connect to one another? They're likely not because, you know, the ways in which our our systems are geared are to measure time, how much time we're spending in seats versus kind of the mastery of, of a certain competency. Yeah, and, you know, maybe put my my very nerdy hat on right now, but, you know, I... I I've noticed sort of a very similar theme across the entire Star Trek genre. No matter whatever movie you watch, whatever series you might be into, there's even like a brand new car- cartoon version out that's actually quite clever. Um, but the overarching thing that you will notice if you watch that at any 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 bit of, of, of regularity is that the science officer, right, ultimately comes up with some incredible solution because they have this vast and deep knowledge in something that they're highly curious about, right? And they come up with the most amazing, and it's always them solving a really complex issue, right? Or figuring out what's really happening in order so everyone else can help make decisions, right? Uh, And if it's not them, it's someone in engineering inventing something else really, really cool, right? And so that seems like if that's pointing us to some version of the future, right? How do we do more of that? How do we get people to a point where they're incredibly curious about how the world works in a very complex, uh, I guess, heavy science and math and all that kind of, it's not easy, right? This is not like we're saying, you just, just, just go memorize a bunch of stuff. This is deep, deep learning. And I don't know, like, how do we take our, how do we take our people to that sort of, uh, you know, finish line? And is that even possible, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting because the conversation has shifted uh, a little bit away from STEM over the last few years. Whereas if you kind of look back at the last recession, it was all about we don't have enough computer science grads and STEM grads to mm-hmm. meet the needs of the future workforce. That that conversation has really kind of um, sort of ebbed a little bit um, in service of a new conversation, which is, OK, we're seeing some really incredible and scary advancements of AI and automation what are the skills that we bring to get, bring to the table as humans that will kind of lead to some sort of competitive advantage in the future? So it's been this kind of 
you know, first it was STEM, now it's human skills, but it's really uh, problematic to think, be thinking of them in kind of either or. It's, it's, it's as you say, it's both and. It's we're going to need these really important human skills, but we're also going to need enough technical skills and enough domain expertise to intervene in the right ways. And then you're going to need those STEM folks who have real deep expertise in the field for certain issues when we're talking about, you know, advanced technologies. So you kind of need, you need both that generalist and humanist approach mixed with enough kind of vertical expertise. And over time, if you kind of imagine like the concept of a T-shaped learner, that T is also going to broaden at the same time, we're going to also have to get a little bit of technical reskilling here and there to to keep Mm -hmm. up. So it's, it's really this this both and I think I'm just totally stealing this um, from uh, David Epstein's book Range, but he he highlights the Innocentive platform where it was a bunch of chemists at the Eli Lilly group where they couldn't figure out a problem, so they actually opened it up uh, and put it out onto the web for for the general public to kind of take a look at. And it was a lawyer who came up with the the answer, or in another program where they were trying to figure out how to how to clean oil spills more efficiently. It was actually a pastry chef who came up with the idea of leveraging her knowledge or his knowledge of chocolate mousse. So I think it's just like, how do we develop that kind of sense of range, but also know that in order to stay competitive, we do have to build both the human and the technical skills at the same time. Well, it's really a connection back to two things that we have seen sort of become a bit more understood and prevalent, which is that teams are better than trying to put superheroes in charge right or some you know mm-hmm. person we, we, we often make the mistake and think that Steve Jobs did it by himself and Bill Gates mm-hmm. did it by himself or Elon Musk is currently doing it by himself because they're not or they didn't they have incredibly smart teams of imagine people and then if you look at like agile and scrum which has said bring people from many different disciplines don't just have a group of of, of engineers trying to figure out a problem have an engineer like you said have all these different people from different walks of life coming in and looking at a problem because they have different expertise and they have different thoughts and uh, can take from different places. But I will say the one thing I am probably the most worried about is this, uh, from an education standpoint, is this continuing narrowing, narrowing, narrowing into, you know, what we think people need to to be or to do. And so we've sort of lost some of that skills gap uh, issues where you have people sort of setting everyone up to go get a $50,000 job doing this thing, right? And we have, mm-hmm. we have this huge workforce, right? That mm-hmm. runs the gamut of skills and, and needs. Um, and yet we, it seems like in education, we have removed music and art classes and anything that's outside of what that, that narrow focus. So do you think we need to expand what kids and what people are, are being exposed to, or is it, is it different than that? Is it more tactical than that? Just maybe it's hyper-focused with one or two pieces of extra. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes, I think what you're maybe pointing to also is the need for more apprenticeships that, that kind of exposure, getting to, getting to practice some of these skills, getting exposed to these different opportunities. One, one hopeful, one hopeful piece of technology is just that there are these AI powered platforms that are emerging that do a better job of kind of servicing, not only kind of our formal credentials and our work experience, but our hidden competencies and skill sets. Mm. And it can kind of open up our view into three to five different pathways that maybe we never even thought possible for ourselves. We don't do well at kind of envisioning pathways and, and kind of being ambitious about the way we think about transferable skills. And so some of these platforms are enabling a little bit of that visibility into oh, I never thought I could be a systems network analyst, or I never thought I would maybe take my skills into HR or PR and marketing and advertising. Mm -hmm. And it kind of does that and shows here's, you know, you're maybe 60% of the way there. You just have these gaps that you need to fill. And here are the kinds of skills you need to build over time. And here are some of the learning pathways you may pursue. So those are kind of exciting to see. And just in terms of helping us in our just kind of human weakness of not necessarily always being able to imagine that future ahead of us. Encouraging to know that AI may not completely take all of our jobs. It may actually right. help us find a better one. So Michelle's given us some hope here. Uh, you know, last question as we're almost out of time. How can people find out more about you and your work or get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to find out more? Sure. The best way is um, to go onto my website, which is called riseanddesign.io, or you can always reach me on Twitter and LinkedIn through the 
you know, the handle RW Michelle. RW Michelle. Well, Dr. Michelle Weiss, thank you so much for being a great guest on the show today and providing us with such great insights. Hopefully we can have you come back and keep talking about the future of work because it is fascinating. And we really appreciate your thoughts. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break and bring in my second guest, Chuck Cooper. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly through our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news? Or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, Dr. Michelle Weiss. Don't forget, you can find her interview on our podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you subscribe and find your podcast. You can also go to talenttalkradio.com and subscribe there as well and find all of our past shows for the last what, four or five, six years, however long we've been on the radio forever, it feels like in a good way. Um, but uh, let's talk about my next guest, which is uh, Chuck Cooper. He's the managing member at Whitewater Consulting. Uh, and don't forget, we're also live tweeting this right now. So follow at PeopleG2. You can look for that hashtag talent talk as well. And any incredibly brilliant things that he says or any links or any books or anything else that we think is important, we will document right there on Twitter so that you don't have to write it down. But all right, Chuck, we'll bring you into the show. How are you today, sir? I'm great. It's good to be with you today, Chris. Well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and you might want to move a little bit closer to the microphone if that's possible. And, uh, you know, kind of what, what, what should we know about you and the work that you do? So I'm, um, I am the managing member and founder of Whitewater Consulting in Charlotte, and uh, I've been in Charlotte now for 21 years, and we really, as a company, we specialize in working with small and mid-sized companies throughout the U.S., helping them with their HR solutions. Uh, most of the uh, the work that we do, um, we are designed to be a, a business consulting practice that really specializes in human resources. So it's been a, a great run and uh, certainly have enjoyed working with uh, people that I consider to be my heroes, which are the small to mid-sized companies. And I should point out that Chuck is actually wearing a full suit and tie, which in COVID times, I have not really seen. It's the <laughs> new disappearing act. I have people showing up for like important calls in like their pajamas still. So even though I've worked remotely since 2009, I still dress up a little bit for work. I'm not in a suit like you are, sir, but thank you for, for, for doing that. <laughs> no, I'm glad this is my, uh, my normal attire. And I've actually, I feel much better whenever I'm dressed this way. So I, yeah, you know, what, it's funny. We, we always encourage our people, you know, remote, we're like, you know, shave or put on your makeup or do your hair, whatever it is that you need to do, you know, wear your clothes, you know, that at least somewhat dressy. You don't have to be dressy, dressy, but you know, and it does make a mental difference. It really does kind of put you in that frame of mind. Uh, whereas I have had days, I will admit that work just, I woke up and work hit me, you know, like a baseball bat, or like a, a, a runaway bus. And next thing I knew it was one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm still in bed. I'm still in my pajamas. I am like, you feel so unproductive, right? When you do that. So <laughs> absolutely. I've been there. I'm sure most of us have been there over this past year. Yeah. Yeah. So how has COVID impacted uh, the way leaders are leading right now, especially inside of your favorite group, which is that small and medium size, you know, company size? You know, Chris, when you look back um, a year ago and we and the pandemic hit, um, there was uh, for small business owners, especially there was just a sense of loss of control. Uh, there was a lot of fear, uncertainty. Uh, they just didn't really know. Um, you know, what was the, the right thing to do at that particular time. So I think that as leaders um, spend some time kind of becoming more introspective, looking at their processes and the way that they managed and the way that they led their teams, 
Uh, I think that if you fast forward to today and look back, uh, leadership has really become much more uh, authentic in the way that they are approaching their teams. They're becoming much more transparent with them in, in their communications um, and the way that they're leading their companies as well. And then I think probably the other key thing is, um, is as an organization, they are becoming much more collaborative uh, with their team. So rather than having the hierarchy where we have the, the top-down approach, it's basically becoming much more of a, of a community. And so we're really uh, empathizing with our, our teams and listening to where our employees are and the challenges that they're going through. Because at the end of the day, this pandemic has impacted everybody in the world. So this is the first time we really have been hit with something like this in my lifetime. And I think that uh, leaders in general right now are really focusing on how they can best pull their teams back together and be able to move them forward. Yeah. And, and even though it's different, I think there are some similarities between what we've gone through as a country or, or as a entire uh, world, right? As far as a, a major event has completely disrupted our way of work, our way of living. Uh, it's similar to like a world war, right? I mean, in World War II, you couldn't go wherever you wanted to go. You were somewhat restricted. You were some, you know, there was things going on out of your control that would cause you anxiety and worry. Not the same as a war, but I'm just, you know, this is the first time in my lifetime, right? Where I just can't get on a plane and go wherever I want to go. I can't, you know, do what I want to do. I have to think about things in a different way that I, than I've ever had to. Um, but I have also noticed that organizations have done a pretty good job of realizing that COVID has shown up, really shined a light on great leaders. It's also shined a light on some really bad leaders, right? <laughs> Correct. And, and this is one of my favorite things about having a remote company is it's really hard to hide you know, it, when you're remote, if you are a bad leader, if you're a bad employee, like it just feels more obvious. But are you seeing other important challenges, other things that, you know, people are sort of facing, having to think about uh, that maybe they didn't have to before uh, during this last year? So I think, Chris, I think one of the things that I noticed uh, going back to last year, looking at the time frame and the May, June, July time frame, we saw a lot of um, companies that were you know, pretty much paralyzed at that point. But what I noticed was that uh, leaders that were involved with peer groups or if they had, for example, a business coach, they were much um, quicker to make a pivot and to be able to move their, forward, move their team forward versus the leaderships that were sitting pretty much in a silo by themselves. They were pretty much paralyzed really didn't know for sure what to do at that time. So I think they recognize the importance of, uh, of peer groups and, and having a community around them just to work as a sounding board uh, to be able to help them make some decisions for their company that was pretty imperative because it really helped them not only to survive, but ultimately put them in a position to thrive as they move forward last year, because some of the companies had a really good year last year. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the other interesting thing is that some companies struggled uh, some companies survived and some companies had to deal with the fact that they got a lot busier than they ever thought they were going to get because their services or their products were now in much higher demand. So yeah, certainly a lot of stress uh, across different organizations. Exactly. And I think that, you know, part of that was dependent on the industry that you were in, but um, you know, it did make it, I think it made a big difference too, as to whether you were a good leader to your organization, whether you, you ultimately pulled your team together quickly and you started communicating to them. You may not have had um, 100% of the facts straight at that point in time, but you were at least communicating with your team, giving them some assurance as to what mm -hmm. was going on, the fact that you were still engaged with the business and ultimately keeping that vision out in front of the people because so much of what they were really craving at that time, they just wanted some type of security. Uh, they wanted some uh uh, I think probably the psychological security that comes along with just being able to be that good leader, communicate and continue to lead versus those other organizations that, again, remain paralyzed. Uh, there was almost, uh, ultimately a void in the communications. And as you know, anytime there's a void with communication, our minds typically go to worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we, yeah. In the absence of information, we, we go to what we do know. And often what we do know is a pretty pretty negative view or a pretty uh, anxiety-filled view of, of how the world is. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think the, the future of, of work maybe looks like for small and medium businesses? Because I have seen uh, inside SMB and also even in large organizations, 
you know, leaders and, and even employees saying, I'm, I'm, I really like the amount of sort of collaboration we're having, how we're having everyone on the team on video. It's not just me and three people. And then we're letting someone call in on some crappy, you know, tell a line at where we're not really paying attention to them and they're not really engaged. Like we're, we're all fully engaged. We're on this thing. And they're saying they're hoping that this continues, even if we go back to some semblance of quote unquote normal, right? But we have employees that don't work in our office. We have other divisions. We have other you know, people maybe even around the world that are working for us. What, what are you seeing as maybe the future that we should be thinking about? I think to, to, to that point of, uh, I think we are going to continue to see more and more companies going to either the hybrid model where you have people working in the office versus working from home. But I think as we look to the future, the next, particularly the next five years, um, I really see that uh, there's going to be more of a, the uh, gig economy is going to start to play. And I think you're going to see more more individuals going out on their own to kind of create uh, maybe their own entrepreneurial uh, path. And so with that is going to come uh, people working not just from within the U.S., but I think you're going to have people from, you know, from Europe and from other countries around the world that are going to be applying for positions within, the, uh, within jobs and opportunities here in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that the work structure is going to continue to change. And I think that as, as new generation or the younger generation comes into the workforce, especially the Gen Z and some of the millennials, there's more of a uh, desire on their part to want to have not necessarily to climb the corporate ladder, but to have more of a, a lattice approach to where they're basically going side, make it, taking a side position uh, just to be able to gain more experience and be able to have ways to be able to increase their skills for the, for the long term. Yeah. I mean, hopefully this, this experiment for most companies in remote work will give them the opportunity to see that, you know, there are those people that do want to climb the ladder, right? Their, their trajectory is uh, where's the ladder and how quickly can I climb it? And you have other people that say, well, I want to climb it up to level five, and then I need to plateau for two or three years because I'm starting a family, because I have a sick uh, uh, parent, uh, you know, whatever the thing is going on in their, in their life, they've got to maintain where they're at, but they're not looking to to keep going up, at least not now. And then, but later on, then they want to start climbing that ladder again. And certainly remote work and that flexible sort of approach can allow for that. Um you know, and so, uh, and, and, and maybe get even more out of people that they couldn't have gotten more out of by removing two hours of traffic every day, right? By removing that ability to have to do all of that. You know, I think that's going to be a big piece of it. And I think that, um, you know, again, as we look at the future, I think that the social cause is going to become more of a, um, an important factor for where people take positions with companies. And I think companies are going to, even this SMB market is going to have to start to focus on that at some point here as well. So I think those are some big changes. Um, I think that or as a, as a work team, as teams within a company, I think that they are going to be, rather than going to an office to work, I can see the time where they're going to be going maybe into a central location to basically do team building or to do collaboration, but then dispersing and going back to actually complete right. the work. So I think those are some trends we're already seeing right now. And I think those trends are here to stay. Have you seen uh, COVID, you know, maybe impact engagement or mental mental health sort of practices by companies in any certain way? And the reason I ask that, because I think prior to COVID, I noticed a very general approach, right? We're going to implement a general engagement strategy. We could, you know, give them a general mental health or, strategy. And then if there's any outliers, right, if anybody's really screwing it up, well, then HR is going to deal with them, right? We're going to have a sort of a different approach. Are you seeing a different approach now, maybe more of a micro approach or more of a specific employee approach or, or anything else different uh, during this time? I think as it relates to engagement, I think, you know, I think when you look at the studies, even this last year, some productivity is actually up, but I think it's taken a longer time to actually complete that work. And so I think if you were to look at engagement, the overall level of engagement by employees today is probably down compared to where it was pre-pandemic. Um, but I think that even with that, um, I think leaders right now, as they look to reopen and they're looking at bringing their teams back, they have a major focus on, on their overall state of the health of their employees 
because as you look at, at you know, in your employees today, or you look at families today, uh, where you are typically just living within four walls. I mean, over this last year, you've been working from home, you've been living there, and you've also been trying to educate kids if you have young ones that are in school. So there's been a lot of additional stress and pressure put on them, as well as, you know, in some cases, uh, loss of jobs. So you've got financial stress, you know, and plus everything else has come along with the pandemic, as well as social unrest and, and political unrest in the country. So when you look at all of this combined, I think we, as leaders, we really do have to be focused on, on individuals. Where are they and how healthy are they when they come back? And if, depending on where they are, I think there's going to be an additional need to be able to put in place some benefits that are going to help address and provide resources to address that mental health challenge that many are having. Because in the U.S. today, I think the most recent report I saw, about 54% of the people in the U.S. are having challenges in that area. Yeah, and that's what's been interesting in the reporting is that it looks like anxiety and anything around the mental health compartment, we've seen a worsening of scores, right? Which is to be expected. We're dealing with all this stuff. There's a lot of uncertainty. But I have noticed that if you look, just look at the engagement scores themselves, those have actually gone up. People are actually happier. And some of the story behind that is the obvious things we think about, right? They didn't have to sit in traffic. Um, they didn't have to spend money on food and clothes. And like it was, it's just easier to sort of work from home. But the other compartment was they didn't have to be around and interact with people that they don't like, right? <laughs> I mean, human beings can really suck sometimes. I mean, the you know, you have certain personalities in office that you can't control to be around them, or somebody microwaving fish in the pop in the, you know, in the and burning popcorn in the microwave. I mean, that, that are just annoying things about being around a large group of people sometimes that kind of goes away by, you know, staying on your own and just meeting with the people you need to meet with. So I, I'm hoping we can find a good balance there, right? Maybe help on the mental health side. And maybe that's something of a good question for you is what can leaders do to actually try to help employees deal with, you know, the, on, on the mental health side of it? I think first, I mean, you have to recognize as leaders, your greatest asset you have are your people, whether it's your individual team or whether it's your company, uh, your people are your greatest asset. So how you go about protecting them as a leader, I think you have to set some very, very clear boundaries and, and not only set the boundaries, but also be able to model these uh, boundaries to your, uh, to your team as well. So when I talk about that, we're really talking about being able to designate, you know, time and boundaries between work life and, and personal life. Uh, as leaders, when we set those boundaries, that doesn't mean, you know, when you know somebody is in personal time, that doesn't mean to shoot them emails and try to reach out to them, but be respectful of those boundaries, that, you know, that have been established. The other thing is, is encouraging, um, encouraging people to take time off. And there, I think there's been a stigma, a negative stigma attached to mental health. I think there's been a negative stigma attached to taking PTO, uh, even though it's a paid benefit, there's still been a negative stigma attached to that. To, if I'm going to take time away, that I'm going to be looked upon negatively by my management or by my leader or by my team. And I think we've got to figure out ways to deconstruct those, those um, stigmas that are attached. And then in addition to setting those boundaries and modeling the need for taking time off is really encouraging time, your employees, if they need to throughout the day, take 10 minutes to break away from technology, make the recommendations to unplug from social media, or if, I, if nothing else, identify those sources that are causing that stress and causing challenges and figure out ways that you can unplug from that throughout the day. Some companies I'm talking to right now, they're actually saying, look, we're going to give our employees um, the third Friday of each month. We're going to give them the day off just to be able to unwind and be able to get healthy and come back. And th there's probably some validity and some value in being able to do that for some companies. Yeah. And, and, and I love that kind of intentional act, right? So it, it really has to start from the top. Companies, if they want people to be to do these things, they have to show them the way, they have to lead the way, and then they have to provide or create sort of systems around there that make it easy for employees to, to do those things. So like we went back and told everyone, you have to take your vacation in 2020. Like you have to use your vacation time because we knew they weren't going to because there's nowhere to go, right? They weren't going to take a break. And so we told everyone, you got to do it. And they were begrudgingly happy that we, you know, first they were like, well, and then they were really happy, even if they just stayed home, that they took a break. Um, you know, there was 
some exceptions we made to unique cases, but we generally just said, we need you to take your time off. We need you to, 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 to rest and, and be ready for when you come back, to, you know, whatever that means. But we've also had to do things like uh, remove, have them remove all their emails on day one, right? Not come back to 3,000 unread emails that causes you so much stress that you don't ever want to go on vacation again. Exactly right. right. Uh, and so you have to be really intentional about how you kind of curate that uh, experience for people. So they want to take their time off. They want to do those things. I was talking with a business owner the other day and he made the comment that at, to your point that he's, when he's, when his employees go away on PTO, he's, he's turning off their emails to them. And he's also, if they have a cell phone that's company paid, he's cutting that off as well. So he, he wants those employees to totally unplug when they go away. But the, the great thing is, is he within their company and they've got basically pods. And so they've got teams of like three or four. And so they're dispersing those emails throughout that team. So that when that employee does come back on day one, they don't have, you know, the hundreds right. of thousands of emails to go through. So I don't know about you, but I've gone on vacation, come back and had to go through that. And by, by 48 hours later, I feel like I've never been on vacation. Right. Uh, so being able to figure that out and, and help resolve that for, for your employees, I think is really going to be a big benefit going forward. And if anyone out there says, well, I don't know if I could do that. I promise you, if you put an autoresponder that just says, I'm on vacation, I'm not going to read your email. It's going to be deleted. If you need to reach me, you have to write back to me on this date and then I'll respond. Or if you need someone else, here's all the contact. And I swear, no one has ever complained to me. No one's ever been upset with me. And they've all, if they needed to get a hold of me, said, you told me to write you back on this date. Now, now don't pick day one that you came back. Pick like day two or day three. Uh, they always do if it's something important, right? Uh, or they alert someone else on my team if they really need to get help right away. Uh, it has worked beautifully. And it's just about setting expectations um, to people, exactly. right? They're going to be gone. Um, and and then, you know, the company can help by removing those emails. We, we have our managers just pop on the on a call first thing when someone comes back to give them, hey, here's what you missed, give them the download, what's going on, so they can feel like they're not you know, out of the loop. And then, okay, pull up your screen, delete all your emails for me. <laughs> they delete them all, done. We do make the promise for some of our employees, like in sales or certain ones, if, if you're on vacation and you're the only person that can possibly help us, we are totally stuck without you, we promise we'll call you. And if you wanna answer, then great. Because, you know, there are people who have been working on a deal for two years, right? Or this is, this is going to affect their pocketbook or something, right? We, we, we've made the small exception. And usually just that barrier to anxiety for them is enough that they know we'll call them if, if there really is a problem. And uh, But yeah, you have to be intentional, right? Otherwise, everyone's just going to keep doing it the old way. And Absolutely. Stress out. And I think that's where the good leaders separate themselves from the ones that are are challenged in those areas is the fact that they are looking to really take care of their team. And and I think what you're communicating, Chris, is exactly right. You're looking to to take care of your team, make sure that they are not being burnt out and um, making sure that they are the most productive employees that you can have when they're when they're working. And doing those little things are a lot easier than having to find their replacement when they get burned out and they leave. Right. You're exactly right, because we all know what the cost of uh, losing a high performer is. And uh, and I think that's something else that, you know, as we look at, you know, the pandemic and look at where we're going right now, uh, I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that um, companies are going to have as they start to reopen is being able to attract and retain high performing employees, because there's a lot of people right now, about 60% of employees, I believe, are looking to make a change in their career post-pandemic. And I'm really looking for uh, top employees, those high performers to continue to drive remote work because if they say that they want remote work or they want hybrid work, right, employers are going to continue to offer it and to keep this going. And I think that will allow us to keep this, uh, our our present, our future, all right, and to continue to to iterate on it and make it better. And and that makes me somewhat hopeful and excited for the world because just even a year and a half, year, year and a half ago, I was at conferences telling people, no, 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 remote work is amazing. And they were like, yeah, my boss would never go for that. You know, and now they're like, oh, yes, you're, you know, we get it. So uh, I don't know what the lesson is there in getting people to change. If we can get, we'll have to create another pandemic to get them to make a major change next time or something. But 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, th- I think once I think once we've gone through this the first time, I think that um, I think the mindset of, of our society and, and as a country, our mindset has changed as it relates yeah. to work. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Much like my, you know, the mindset of my grandparents, right? After living through World War II, they had a different mindset about work and about how to and family and how to how to do things, right? That was different than my parents, which was different than in my generation because we weren't hadn't gone through something that big and. To your point, we, we we may see the lasting remnants of that, uh, at least through the generations that were alive for it. So. Exactly. Well, how can people get a hold of you? How can they find out more about your work and your company, especially if they're interested in having you come and help them? So I think probably the best place to start, Chris, we have a, uh, a special page set up, uh, which is whitewaterconsulting.net slash talent talk as their um, page where they can find some additional resources as it relates to whitewater consulting. I would also mention that um, you can also connect with us on all of the social media platforms from LinkedIn to Facebook, to Instagram, uh, Twitter as well. And then the other thing we are doing, we are actually offering uh, free 30 minute consultations um, to to the listeners. If you all have questions that are HR related, that we can be a resource for you, we'd certainly be glad to um, share those resources with you and, and give you some guidance. And, and uh, you know, if, if we can't be a resource, we'll certainly connect you with somebody that can. So uh, those are probably the best way. My personal email, if someone would like to reach out, is chuck at whitewaterconsulting.net. And the website was whitewaterconsulting.net slash talent talk. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Perfect. Well, there you go, listeners. You've got your own special landing page. Hopefully you can take advantage of all the great things that uh, Chuck and his company are offering. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I know we didn't get to everything, so hopefully we can have you come back at some point and we can keep the conversation going and get an update on your thoughts on the world of work. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Chris. It's great to be with you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into today's show. Hopefully, you gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 